0: Hello, I am Anika Orak, author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and you are listening to the fabulous Baseball and Barbecue Podcast with Jeff and Lynn.
1: Listeners, episode 70. This is, I am, Jeff, how excited are we? for We are, we are excited. excited. We are excited. Now, this, this show, this podcast, we've always been missing one key ingredient one thing has been missing from this show it's intro music i know we've had some intro music in the past that we you know it was that but we have a special for you guys we are going to launch on this episode a song from our very good friends of the show dave dresser and Shel krakowski not only are we going to launch a song that they wrote, but we've got Dave Dresser and Shell Krakowski with us <laughs> on our show. Welcome, Dave and Shell.
2: Thank yes, you so. very much. Thank you. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's a pleasure to be with you two guys. Always fun.
3: That's uh, quite the introduction. I'm amazed by uh, <laughs> by that. That's That's awesome. Thank you for uh, the kind words. <laughs> oh, we, listen,
1: you know how we feel about you guys. You guys are the best. We play... We play baseball. Baseball always brings you home at the end of every show. It's fantastic. We've gotten many, many, many comments on the song. People really enjoy it. And for you guys to do this intro for us, it's just, it, it really is just so nice. It, it, it is.
2: It's awesome. Well, awesome. thank you so much. We, we enjoyed being your uh, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. <laughs> <laughs> but introducing you is going to be even more fun.
1: <laughs> it, really, it really is. So, Jeff, why don't we play the song, all right? Play the song. And right. then, uh, well, Dave and, and Shell, is there anything you want to say about the song before we before we start it, before we play it? I shouldn't even say song. It makes it like it's like this, I think it's 30 seconds, but it's the best 30 seconds that I've heard in a long time. Right. <laughs>
2: We hope your listeners like the joy that we hope it brings with the rest of your show.
4: The gods are here.
1: Fantastic. Wow. All right.
3: So, Dave, I know, Dave, you're the music. And, Shell, you're the lyrics. Wow. Well, I have to tell you, so this was really really, uh, Shell's brainchild. You know, we knew you guys liked the the original song, and we really appreciate you guys uh, promoting that and and being so supportive of that. And, uh, you know, Shell Shell came up with this idea of, of putting together this introduction for you. And uh, really, I guess, is a way of saying thanks for all the support and the fact that you guys have uh, have kind of dug into what we've been doing and, uh, and like it. And, uh, it, yeah, it was Shell's uh, Shel, idea. came up with the, the lyrics. Shell, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, I, I think the music is so catchy and so uh, absolutely profound. It, it, it's one of the better things you've written. And I'm glad, you know, it's getting so much play elsewhere but it you know these these two fellows were the the first ones to give us some traction and really introduced the song to the world and so always we'll have a soft spot for baseball and barbecue so thank Thank you. you so much and glad to be part of your show
1: thank you and and you're not kidding the world i i told you guys we are heard all over the world i think we may be the number one baseball and barbecue podcast in places, I like I told you, Saudi Arabia yeah. and, and Canada. I think we're doing quite well in your neck of the woods. So we thank you for that.
3: Well, we're always happy to we happy to share uh, share your podcast. And the, yeah, we've had lots of, of uh, you know Facebook friends and so on that have uh, have commented on uh, on the podcast and uh, are are really uh, enjoying that and picking up on the tune and and actually I don't know if it was like you guys involving us with your program and, and sort of some of the, the social media stuff that happened on our end because of that. But we've actually uh, had a lot of interest in the song in general in Canada. I mean, we've been featured on uh, CBC National, which is our you know national broadcaster here on their news program. That was what about, I guess that was when the season started. I think they had us- a... Opening day.
2: Opening day. Opening day, we were the, the lead story on the national news in Canada. And on the national network on radio, they had us on in the morning, and then on the weekend they had us on the top jazz show in Canada. It was, nice. it was crazy, but but it was you guys who got us started. I mean, uh, oh. somebody somebody was listening. So uh, <laughs> that was great. I wanted to ask you.
5: I want to ask you about your. You also have another baseball song out there called Ace and Bobo. Do you, uh, right. us, could you tell us about that?
2: Well, that that song was our attempt to bring a social issue to baseball, and it, I guess it's frontier justice with baseball, and we thought it, that had never been done before, and so mm-hmm. we did it, and happy with the response, it wasn't overwhelming like with the baseball always brings you home, but it was positive, and it might be a, a genre we may explore later on, but you know, just, it was, it's basically a Western song. Right. Put the baseball with frontier justice. And, you know, as I walk down the streets of Laredo, that sort of thing, baseball and the, the topic is, is a difficult topic. So I'm not going to talk about it, but, but anyway, it it, it, it got some interest It you know, it wasn't a blockbuster, but right. it's something, it's something we wanted to do. And that's the nice thing about being creative, whether it, it takes off or not. You've done it, and you're happy that you did it.
5: And, Dave, how did you uh, come up with that music uh, to that song?
2: You know, I was looking for something that sounded
3: kind – of, you know when you listen to – or you watch a Spaghetti Western, right? And you hear that background music that you, usually they play, uh, you know, as a soundtrack. I thought, well, I'm looking for something that would be kind of similar like to that. So lots of acoustic instruments and uh, – you know, I think there was a flute or something like that in there at the beginning. And so it's kind of that forlorn Western thing. You wanted to, I wanted to evoke the imagery of, you know, the, uh, the deserted ghost town or tumbleweed blowing across the street or that kind of thing. And, you know, I guess it takes place, you know, across the border in Mexico that's kind of where the story happens. So a little bit of Spanish sounding stuff in there too. And, no, it, uh, I think it, the music worked uh, well with the, the the lyrics that Shell came up with, and uh, and it, again, we really appreciate you guys playing that uh, that tune. I know mean, you featured that on one of your episodes too, and uh, yeah. it's uh, it's uh, gone over quite well for sure. Okay. We,
1: we greatly appreciate you guys.
3: Well, thank you very much to both you guys. We really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah. It's been, been very fun being back on the show again. And uh, again, thanks for all the support. It means a, a ton to, to both of us, for sure. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, guys.
2: Thank you, right. and, and continued success with your show. Thank, thank you.
3: you. Thank
1: you, Dave and Shell. And you know what, we, we thank them also for lending us, and the City of Buffalo thanks them for lending us, the Blue Jays, which for <laughs> this season are the Buffalo Blue Jays.
5: Yes, that's true. Very right, right. <laughs> that's right.
1: Just a uh, quick telling everyone what's coming up on this episode. We've got a, a jam-packed episode. We have part two, because you have been waiting. I know I've been hearing from so many people. Why'd you have to make it two parts? I wanted to hear it all. Well, you know what? Here you go. Here's part two of Doug Shiding, of Rogue Cookers, of Traeger, of Head Country. You're going to love this. Part two is even better than part one. And then, of course, we have none other than Mitchell Nathanson who's the author of Bouton, The Life of a Baseball Original. Jeff, this show is filled with stuff.
5: Absolutely. And if you want to reach the show, give us a call, 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Check us out on our Facebook page. Check us out on Twitter. Our Twitter address is at baseballandbbq. We have an Instagram page, baseballandbarbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And now, here's Doug Shining Part 2. All
1: right, let's go back to barbecue. So, right. So, okay.
5: how, how, how many uh, grills do you have in your backyard there? And I know you have a Traeger. You know you have a great gas grill. Well, that's two. That's all I have, too. Uh, I'm sure you have uh, plenty more. Uh, yeah. I've,
6: well, I've, yeah, I've got a few. So, because of my engineer background... I, I get along real well with the engineering team at Traeger. So they like to send me their beta grills and, and things. So I don't have 20-some like Daniel does, but I've got nine Traegers that, that I have of varying of varying sizes and types and, and things. So on my back porch, I have four. And so I've got the, the three new ones that they have, which are all Wi-Fi enabled and stuff. And then I've got their little tabletop one that uh, they – call it a ranger. It looks like a little suitcase. That thing is a steak cooking beast. That thing is awesome. You know, it's only like this big. So the cooking surface is like a, 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 a sheet of paper size, maybe a little, a little larger. So you can get four steaks on there and that thing will get up to 450 degrees, put a griddle on there and you can re- re- reverse sear like no one's business. So I've got those, I've got I've got a Weber. I used to cook chicken on Weber. That's what I'm known for from Houston rodeo. Favorite thing to cook is brisket. But, um, so I've got a Weber and, uh, I've got two drums cause I used to make drums for people. I used to customize them for, you know, college or, you know, sports team. I've done Dallas Cowboys or, you know, university of Houston, Michigan state. And so I used to do that cause I used to cook on drums. That's actually what I, that I started on before we, we went over to the, uh, uh, you know, to the offset pit. So, yeah, that's about it. So Traeger's going to be coming out with some new grills, so I, I expect I'll get a couple more. But on my trailer, I've got a trailer, and that's one of the reasons I, I bought a Traeger is because when I split up with my cooking partner or kicked off the team, whatever, however you want to look at it, I have a trailer, and so I've got a. It's built out like a kitchen, so I needed something that I could roll up, roll down, or you know carry up and down, and I didn't have another way to really. Haul another offset, and so that's why that's how I started getting into the the pellet grills. Is I wanted to just be able to roll it up and roll it roll it down. So on my competition uh trailer, I have three as well, and then I've got a couple of spares that that sit in the garage.
1: You know, Jeff, I think each of us has room on our, uh, <laughs> our decks for, for a Traeger. And, for a you know, Traeger, is that right, guys? Hell out of Traeger. <laughs> yeah. It would talk, It would be Traeger. It would be like. We're here with Doug Traeger and yes. Traeger. It would be like one of those, um, you know, like if you're at the movie theater and they show, yes. they show like the, the movie and then interspersed was, was popcorn or soda so that you have a craving. We would,
6: oh, the subliminal messaging that they Traeger, do where they flashed it up messages. for a one one hundredth of a second Traeger. <laughs>
1: so if Traeger's listening and they should be because they're representatives on um, We'll send you our addresses. <laughs>
6: yes, that you never
5: know. You never know.
1: Exactly.
5: Exactly. Yes. So, uh, Doug, let me ask you. Yeah. Different types of of, of cookers, uh, smokers, tra- uh, pellets. What is there a meat would be best for for each one? Like would a chicken be best on a uh, on a smoker and a, a ribs on a Traeger or a pellet or, or can you talk talk about that? Any type of meat best for a, a certain type yeah. of cooker? Yeah, so Traeger, you know, people actually
6: started using Traegers uh, some on the, the the competition cooking circuit for chicken cooking because chicken, you really uh, most chickens in competition, you don't really get a lot of smoke on. You're really just kind of cooking it, and you don't want to overcook it, and you know, because you'll lose the moisture and stuff. So a lot of people use use uh, started using Traegers for as a chicken as a chicken cooker. I think. Uh, what Rusty from that's the newest embedded correspondent on the, the barbecue central, he, he says he's got a green mountain grill. The only thing they cook on it is chicken. That's it. And nothing more, you know, just like with any, any different type of cooker, you know, whether it's a Weber smoky mountain bullet or, or, you know, an offset, et cetera, you have to learn how to cook on it. And uh, one thing with the pellet cooker is you, in my opinion, you need to go low and slow. So hot and fast, I don't. You're not going to get as much. the The smoke on a pellet cooker is much finer. You know, you really don't see it a lot of times. You know, blue smoke is the best smoke, right? That's that's smaller particles. The white smoke, you know, the heavy white smoke that you see sometimes, like especially on like these offset. If I go to a competition and I see someone with an offset cooker and they've got this white billowy smoke coming out, mark them off the list. They're not getting. There the odds are they're not getting a top 10 because that's a dirty, that's a dirty fire. The pellet cooker has a real clean fire. And so that's why it's a real fine smoke. So you need to really cook longer. So, you know, I'll cook my brisket 15 to 18 hours and, you know, which, and which is much longer than what, you know, most of the competition cookers might get up at two or four and then cook it in six, six or eight hours, you know, for a hot and fast. So, I think from a from a consistency standpoint the the traeger does great on on chicken ribs and brisket, but if you want a lot of smoke, you need to smoke you know you need to cook it a long time uh, I think you know whether whether it's a traeger or any other pellet grill, I presume so yeah
1: well, it's funny because here i mean as is every place else, everybody has different opinions on barbecue, but we're in New York, and sometimes you'll have people say. It's, eh, I don't like too much smoke and, you know, that. so sometimes, you know, you say you don't want a heavy smoke. So, cause I always hear, and, and I don't mean to make that it's, I'm actually not trying to make this a commercial for Traeger, but I have heard, you know, the Traeger where pellet grills in general, don't put off a lot of smoke or don't give your right. food a smoky flavor. And if you really want more smoke, you have to get the tubes and, you know, yep. add to it. They're, here it would be perfect. Cause I, as a lot of people I speak to, and they don't really want that heavy smoke on their food, you know, if they're, they're
6: not used to it, it's not is it right. can be an unpleasant taste. And, and that's why, you know, a lot of competition cookers, they take the bark off. You, you need to take the bark off the wood and, and just cook that with the, with the interior part of the wood. Cause that bark actually acts to protect the inside of the, the, the tree. And so it, it gets all the contaminants that are in the air. So, yeah, so if, if someone's cooking and they're cooking with that, that bark on, it'll, it'll have kind of an acid taste to it. And, uh, you know, so that's why you'll see people that, you know, will take the time. We used to take the time and, and trim, off, trim off the bark. It's a good tip. Yeah, yeah, cut up, you know, different pieces and stuff. But on a pellet cooker, truthfully, I don't think the, you know, the, the smoke is so fine. It, there is a small amount, uh, you know, you, that you can tell from different flavors and, and things. You know, Tra- Traeger has one that's, that as it's called Big Game Blend. It has rosemary in it. You can taste the rosemary if you do a long cook on it. But, uh, you know, things like chicken and, and fish and things like that, I'll use applewood. Or, you know, down here, we use a lot of oak, a little bit of mesquite. Um, you know, the Southeast, they use a lot of hickory. You know, Pacific Northwest, they use, you know, alderwood and those sorts of things. And yeah, it's, it's, so just wherever you are, you'll probably the palate of the people there, they're used to that, that sort of flavor. So, you know, if I go up and go to New York and, and, and break out some mesquite, that's not gonna be a pleasant pleasant taste to, right. to people in New York because they're just not used to it, you know, cause it has a very, somewhat of an acrid type taste to it, so.
1: Yeah, the bags, the chunks that you buy, now those already have the bark removed. Don't have the bark on there; those chunks,
6: right, right, yeah, yeah like the western wood and stuff, yeah. So, yeah,
1: because here that's what that's what we have. Although when we talked to Ed Randolph, he was talking about the wood that was readily available to him. I think it was apple.
6: Was apple? Yeah, I think it was apple. He said the orchards and stuff were were yeah. So yeah, so then you know he should probably cook on apple most of the time, and and that would be a, a regular flavor. One of the good, really good competition cooks down here. He's a PhD in food science. And was an inspector for the state. He would go to a, a a small town, would go and eat at the best barbecue restaurant, get some of their barbecue sauce, taste their barbecue sauce, and sometimes he would put that barbecue sauce in his in his uh, competition because it's from the local area, right? So so he would. That was one of his secrets: is he would put some of the local barbecue sauce, in, uh, from that town, in his uh, in his competition, you know, barbecue sauce. So yeah.
1: And, Doug, you also uh, represent Head Country. I do. Uh, We have just started noticing last year. I found it in some grocery stores around. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah, and I picked it up right away because I was shocked. I was really shocked. You know, I I had wanted to try it. There were just some sauces besides our buddy Ray Sheehan of Barbecue Buddha, who has his sauces. But there's, of course, Head Country. And... uh, oh. Blues hog, I was gonna say blues Blues hog. Yeah, blues hog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Blues hog sauce. I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah, Uh, there, there are some, you know, and you can find that now in a couple of like specialty stores around and stuff. Yeah, you see that, you just pick it up right away. Although I, you know, making sauce is a lot more fun, but sometimes you don't have time.
6: Well, you know, when I started, uh, when I started off, I used to make my own rubs. And, you know, one of my, one of my friends who's a chef and came over and brought his mom from France. And, you know, I used to do cherry chipotle ribs and he was like, why did you go away from, I, I made everything, you know, from scratch, but I, I started making my own rubs. And then I noticed that it wasn't tasting the same. And so then I started going down through all the ingredients. And then I, I noticed that I thought it was the paprika. So I went to the grocery store, oh, they started using a different supplier for paprika. And I'm like, whoa, that's it. I'm not making so now, but I've used head country the entire time in terms of their 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 sauce. My neighbor actually turned turned me on to that back in 2008. And so I have used that and I used their rub and in that brisket that I got second place and got kicked off the team. I had head country actually almost my exact recipe is on the head country website The the, that brisket recipe was their number one recipe last year. And so that is, that's almost identical to my recipe that I want got second place at the, at the San Antonio rodeo. So I started using commercial rubs because they should all be this it should be the same from year to year and it's not like a wine, like it's going to be different. Uh, so I, I uh, and so then I mix the commercial rubs and I used like two or three different rubs. And uh, so the head country, if you can get it, you can go to their website and you can find where, where they, where they sell near, year, near you. So their apple habanero is fantastic. Yes. Yes. You know, that's, that's probably my favorite right now. It sounds like it's going to be, you know, spicy, but it's really not. It's no. really not that spicy, you know, and their original and, so yeah, they've got two or three that are just fantastic that I use right now in my in my glazes. I do use a little bit of blues hog, but it's primarily head country as my foundation. So that's my foundation. And then I start with that and then I add other ones to 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 the flavor po- profile, if you will.
1: Our guest is Doug Shiding. Doug, please plug, take take this moment to plug, tell us where to find anything that you have, you know, to offer.
6: Okay, sure. Uh, you can find me on uh, Instagram and Twitter uh, and Facebook at, at Rogue Cookers, and I've got you know, like I said, I've got recipes on on Traeger's website, Head Country. I do want to mention. Can I mention my two favorite baseball moments that I've oh, ever? Sure, had? sure. Okay.
4: Totally. okay, okay. All as right. Long so, as they because feeding the Mets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
6: One of them does, one oh, of them does, oh, all right, yeah. for full disclosure, so that'll be the teaser, but we go to a different stadium every year, so we've gone to 15 different stadiums, well, we've gone 15 different years, my friends, you know, they're Cardinal fans. Actually, one of my friends that, that used to be a tennis player, he is fantasy baseball camp number one, Hall of Fame you know, they have the uh, the fantasy baseball camp where they basically spring training and stuff, you know, where they hold, mm-hmm. you know, West Palm Beach or whatever, yeah. you know, where you can go and pay and stuff. He's been in it for like, I don't know, 18 years or something like that. He always wins the Cy Old War. So he got Hall of Fame number one. of course, it's with the Cardinals. And so, but so we follow the, the Cardinals to different stadiums. So last year we went when Albert Pujols went back. To St. Louis. Nice. So we specifically had that game. So, you know, the standing ovation that they gave him, the town loves him. It was incredible. You know, I thought, yeah, there'd be no booze. I didn't hear anything. You know, I think he has even a wing of the hospital named after him because he's donated money and stuff. And so we had actually had a suite because fantasy camp hall of fame, got a suite for us at the game. And so, so I actually, you know, stayed up till about the third or fourth inning. And then I just had a feeling. So I went down and because we had actually had other seats that were behind the first base base so we went down there and when albert pool holes i was videotaping it when he hit that home run The stadium erupted and it was one of the coolest moments that i've ever experienced at, at a baseball game oh o- only great. surpassed only surpassed by G- what do you know what i'm gonna say
1: I don't know, but Jeff may want to cover his ears or, cause, or get no. a tissue if he's going to crawl.
6: June, I don't know. <laughs> June 1st, 2012, Johan Santana. I was at that game. Oh, really? Yes, I was at nice. that game.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah.
6: Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are
1: oh, you going to get props? Oh, there you go. Oh, look.
6: Oh, look at that. Yes. And and the hat that I bought that night. Oh, that was incredible. You know, all my fa- all my friends are cheering for the for the Cardinals, and I'm with the Mets fans cheering. <laughs> you, know, you know, forget about the Beltran ball; that was foul. But anyway, when was it Mike Baxter that hit the fence? Yeah, that the, was Mike Baxter. Yeah, when he hit the fence, you knew it was going to happen. You uh-huh. just knew it, right? When he made that catch, you just like in the seventh inning, you just knew it was
5: going to happen. So that is. My favorite baseball stadium moment that I've been to. Wow, well, that's great. Uh, like you, I, I'm trying to get to every stadium. I've been to uh, 15, although I followed the Mets. doesn't always work out seeing, seeing the Mets on the road. But uh, my uh, I did go to Pittsburgh with my son and my wife years ago, and I happened to be playing the Mets. And, oh, really? Uh, uh, I'll tell you, Pittsburgh is like, has to be my favorite away stadium. I love Pittsburgh. That is one of my top uh, – Three other
6: than throwing out Fenway uh-huh. and, the, and the Cubs, you know, yeah, you know, Wrigley and stuff. That is one of, that's my third favorite. Petco actually in San Diego, nice. yeah. I love that building, yeah. in left field. I love that building in left field. So, yeah, we, we've been to about 14, 15 or uh, as well, you know, different stadiums and stuff. So, yeah, kind of sad that Texas opened up their billion dollar stadium to right. no fans, right? nobody there, right? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. kind of sad, but uh, yeah, so anyway. I thought I'd give you a little love on the New York Mets, and yeah, so yeah, June. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the game, you know, he, I think Johan threw like 135 135, pitches. 135, 136 pitches. Yeah, 135. Yeah, he got him out on a changeup. He was only throwing like 80 mile, 85 yeah. miles an hour at the end. You're like, oh my gosh, it was yeah, it was just, it was painful, and you know, and and I know Terry Collins is you know somewhat reluctant that you know it was kind of the end of Johan's career, but uh, Johan said he wouldn't give it up. No, he, he, I don't you know, plan him either. It. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. well, yeah. you know what's
1: funny? What's what, yeah. very funny as, as Mets fans and you're a Cub fan is I instantly thought that it was going to be something negative with the Mets. And that, that was my first thought. I oh, never oh. thought it was going to be a positive moment. <laughs> something Oh, absolutely.
6: Good. As a oh, yeah, no. And
1: you just expect, especially you're a Cub fan, so I'm thinking, oh, okay, it was something oh. <laughs> Cubs did this to us or we I, I
6: saw you pull back and sit back in your chair, you know, the <laughs> social, with, right? you know, you were you were like, okay, I'm uh, bracing for it or whatever. Right. Hey, I I, I I resisted. That I traded Degrom after five years of having him as a keeper on my team because the Mets don't score any runs for him. I traded him last year. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? They don't score runs for him. They don't.
1: Wow. They don't. Yeah. What? What was the? Uh, you guys said something. What was the stat you gave last night, uh, Jeff? You said Degrom in in games.
5: He's like he's like twenty two and thirty six in games started. You know, last two years. Uh, you know, started last two years. Oh yeah, I mean, he's he's
6: a phenomenal pitcher. I I traded him away because I got tired of the, you know either that or the the bullpen would blow, blow up. You know. Yeah. Um. And so I was just like, no, I'm. I'm uh, it was just painful. Yeah. I feel for you. I feel for. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's kind of the same. We have got the Cubs, and you know, yeah. You know, so yeah, we got. A little bit of the same, you know, same thing happening. So (laughs) he's fantastic. And hopefully, you know, the world will come back next year and be, you know, Syndergaard will be great. So,
1: yeah. I hate to say it, but there were more, more, and it's probably going to be one of those too soon, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think there are more people alive today that remember the last pandemic, you know, this, the, in 1908 or the swine flu pandemic.
4: Yeah.
2: Famous flu
1: winning before they won this world series winning the private world series it was people that's how long ago it was yeah but guys you know you you, you won you broke whatever curse and
6: it, oh yeah. it was fantastic you know when 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 winning when the, when the cubs in the ninth uh, in the ninth inning or whatever my wife hadn't been watching it and she sat down i'm like no babe you've got to leave. They they do better when you're out of the room, go to bed right now. You know, it was just so stressful, but uh, yeah, it was fantastic. So yeah, absolutely. I was supposed to be, oddly enough, I looked on my calendar. Where was I supposed to be this weekend? Chicago going to a game. So yeah. 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 I was like,
5: Oh, that was this weekend. Well, when you get to Chicago, go to Milt's Barbecue. It's near Wrigley Field. Oh, Milt's.
6: Okay, Milt. I, haven't, I haven't heard of that. So, yeah, there's a real great burger place that that's that's by uh, the stadium as well. So, um, all the all the burgers are named, you know, after Hard Rock bands. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really good. But uh, yeah, lo- you know, love it. So yeah, it's it's the curse. It's the good and bad of loving a baseball team, right? right.
1: Right. Gentlemen, like when you, when, when your team, when you have that allegiance to that team and you know, yes, the losing hurts, but the winning is so much sweeter when they do win. Yeah. It's it just, it's a lot sweeter. Yep. You
6: know, so, so luckily I only, you know, I only had to like them for 20 years before, you know, not like 50 years,
1: <laughs> <or> 60, <laughs> 70,
6: you know? So yeah. So uh, I, I got, I got a good deal on that one. So.
1: Doug Scheiding, you've been fantastic. Uh, We thank you very much for coming on, and we hope that things will get better. There'll be a lot more competitions. You'll win them, and and we'd love to speak to you again sometime, so thank you. Uh,
6: Absolutely. We can talk about uh, some of the science Or you know, uh, I'm a meathead disciple, so, you know, some of the religious questions, you know, that that we can go through, so in more detail, but
1: uh, yeah. We look
6: sounds great you. thank you gentlemen right. thank you for asking me to be on and thank uh you, you know th- yeah when i told people i was going to be on you know the the podcast they're like well yeah one of the, my wise brothers always in heaven and, <laughs> and and my fantasy guys represent us well
4: you know so. well
1: you have you have represented yourself well them well and we appreciate that you're a listener so that's really you know, we thank you very much.
6: Oh, thank absolutely. You. Yeah, I'm. Uh, thank you for yeah reaching out and and uh, you know uh, a few weeks ago. So yeah, I've listened. I started listening to him on my bike rides, and it's and it's been great. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, the the one with the the gentleman is a Bob Kendrick? Uh, Bob I, Kendrick. Just, yeah. I was just listening to that. Yeah, I've been to the 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 Negro League uh, Baseball Hall. Of, you know, when we went to Kansas City, we went to that, and, and man, did he know the stats? That was it was. That was fantastic. Yeah, he was, he was great. He was actually amazing to know all those stats, to know all the players. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been great. So, yeah, uh, yeah. unfortunately, you've got another listener. So, <laughs> the good and bad. So, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you
1: very much, Doug. Thank you so much, Doug Shining. Fantastic. I cannot wait for him to come back on, Jeff. So, let's get him booked quickly because he's in demand. He is on other podcasts. You got it. There's only one Baseball and BBQ, and we have it. It's our podcast. And he loves talking baseball. He loves talking barbecue. Perfect guest for us. Speaking of baseball and barbecue, episode 70 right now, we want to tell you guys about very quickly, make sure that you guys are going to baseball bbq.com for your grill tools. These are unique. You've heard us talk about them on other shows. It's unique grill tools. Talking about spatulas, forks, with baseball handles that you can have engraved. You can have personally engraved. They make great gifts. They make great gifts for yourself. Baseball, bbq.com. Jeff, they've got great stuff. Not only that, but they've also got some clothing items. They're expanding. I took a look at the website. They're going to have other things. The company is taking off. Baseball, bbq.com. Go there. Check them out. Episode 70 of Baseball and BBQ sent you there. And now, who's next?
5: We have Mitchell Nathanson talking about really American baseball original, Jim Bowden. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So now here's Mitchell Nathanson. Mitchell Nathanson is a professor of law at Villanova University and the author of several books and articles on baseball. His baseball books include God Almighty Himself, The Life and Legacy of Dick Allen, The Fall of the 1977 Phillies, Our Baseball Team's Collapse Sank The City's Spirit, which being Mets fans we know all about during (laughs) 2007-2008, a people's history of baseball, and his latest book is called Boughton. The Life of a Baseball Original. An active member of Sabre who has written award-winning articles, we are honored to welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Professor Nathan, Nathanson. How are you, uh, Mitchell Nathanson?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: Welcome to Baseball and barbecue, Mitch.
0: Well, yeah, I, I, if, if we had barbecue in front of us, it would be better, but this is good enough, I guess. This will have to do. <laughs> <laughs>
5: I'm gonna get started. I'm, I'm sure you got this question a lot, but why why a, a book on, on Jim Bowton?
0: Well, I just think it's it's interesting that a guy who only won 62 games had made such an impact. I mean, usually when we think about writing about baseball players, where where you know you think about Hank Aaron or Willie Mays or ba- Barry Bonds or a guy who was just 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 a, a legendary ball player on the field, and Bowton was just not that, and yet. He's a guy who probably had as much of an impact, if not more of an impact, than some of those guys. And I don't know who else you could look at who has an impact like that. I, I can't think of another person who was really that mediocre as a ball player who left such a huge impact. So I was interested in telling that story.
5: And you said you met with him uh, in the Berkshires before, before, was it before writing the book or you, were, you already started the book?
0: I met with him when I had the idea to do the book, but I, I wasn't going to do the book unless I could, uh, unless I would have his cooperation. Um, I didn't have Dick Allen's cooperation. And that, that worked out all right. I, it would have been good to have Allen, but as it turned out, Allen, the, the story about Allen is more about people's reactions to Allen. And so you can pretty much tell that story even if you don't have Alan, but Bouton is a different story. And a lot of it is Boughton's perspective on the world. And I, couldn't, I can't tell that story unless I have access to the person with that perspective. And so when I went up there, I said to him that I wasn't going to do it unless he would agree to cooperate, um, and, I, and I said, look, I'm not going to move into your house or anything. but I would like for you to be available when it's convenient to talk, answer questions, tell stories, things like that. And he said, sure. And that enabled me to do the book. I mean, the book is not, it's not an authorized biography. So this is not Jim Bouton's telling his story. That's ball four really. And, uh, and, and the updates instead, this is more of a, my take on his life with his perspective included, but broader than that. So it's not just Jim Bouton's, what are what are Jim Bouton's views on this and that? If you read, you know, if you're a Jim Bouton completist, you've read all that stuff. This is really more, it has some of that, but also, well, what did the people in his orbit think, right? When Jim Bouton is saying this or doing that, what was their reaction? Well, we know what Bouton thought their reaction was. They thought, from his perspective, most people thought everything was funny. Or they got angry. But, you know, what did they have to say? So I wanted to talk to those people and hear from them and try to give more different perspectives on his life and therefore provide what I think is a different story than just the one that he told before in the updates.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: Mitch,
1: we had on Ron Swoboda, and uh, the reason I'm, sometimes it takes me a little while to get around to something, but we had on Ron Swoboda, who's actually mentioned later in the book, and the one thing that we didn't ask him about was the catch we he went the whole interview <laughs> never asked him about the catch i'm not going to let that happen now you mentioned ball 4 so whether we go back to his early times and we do after <laughs> got to make sure we mention ball 4 so a lot of this book does focus on that and of course that is he's extremely well known for that. What was your feeling on that book prior to meeting him and then did that change after you met him and and, and discussed it?
0: Well, I love the book. I, I I read it in during the 1981 baseball strike. And I was aware of it before, and I was too young. I was 4 when the book came out, so I wasn't going to read it as a 4-year-old, but but at you know, the time of the 81 strike, I was a 15-year-old kid. I was, that's the perfect age to read that book. And so I read that book and I fell in love with it at that time. First of all, because it was just funny and I missed baseball. And this gave me a way to connect with baseball when there was no baseball. But it also allowed me to understand what was going on during that strike. I didn't it didn't make a lot of sense to me until I read the book. And then I could see the connections between everything he was talking about in Balfour and the things that were being discussed during the 81 strike. So I was always a big fan of the book and I had reread it several times. And, And so when I, after I got started on this, you know, I of course read it. I've been through it a lot since then. And it's interesting. My take on that book is interesting, I think, because people always ask me, do you now that you've done all this? Do you think that this what ball four was fair? Do, do you think that that he was fair to you know whoever Joe Schultz or or you know whoever? And before having gone through this whole process, I don't know how I would have answered that question. I just thought it was a funny book. Now that I've gone through all this, I I, I real I feel really firmly that it's not an issue about whether it was fair or not. And I think that's the wrong question. And I think I came to this conclusion after having done all this work on the book, that I feel like the book, Balfour, is like, it's 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 an artifact. And you're supposed to look at it as an artifact, not as a piece of investigative journalism. So if it's investigative journalism, it's probably not fair. But that's not, it's not what it is. It's an artifact. And when you look at it like an artifact, you really start to see, oh, this is what you know, an impressionistic painter's view of baseball in 1969 was from his perspective, right? And so that's, what I, that, that's how my understanding of the book changed after I started going through this. I started to see it differently. Uh, and at that point, like I said, fair or not fair came out of the equation for me because I just like a Monet on the wall – You're seeing what he saw, for better or for worse. It doesn't look like a tree to me, but it looked like a tree to Monet, and that's good enough. And that's the same thing when it comes to the characterizations of all these players and people in Ball 4.
5: Yeah, Ball 4 is one of the top, what, two or three most important baseball books in the world. That's how it was ranked. (laughs) It's just so fascinating. I remember reading it must have been in the late 70s, and I need to read it again uh, because uh, I we me so fascinated with, with this book. I want to go back to his, his, his humble beginnings. He was, in Jer- he was born, I believe, in Jersey and moved to Illinois during his high school years. And he was actually called Warm Up Bowden because he was always he would get on the team, but he would never get into a game. How, so how did he make it to the Yankees if he wasn't a, such a star in high school?
0: Yeah, that's something. <laughs> but I mean. You you always assume that these guys in the majors were always the stars in high school, and and, and of course he wasn't. Uh, but what happened was he he was a star when he was living in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and and then when he moved out to uh, Homewood, Indiana, uh, uh, where he ended up in the you know, Bloom Township High School in Illinois, Chicago Heights, that was such a big school, and there was it was a jock factory, and as I as I mentioned in the book, Jerry Colangelo. The you know, future uh, president of the uh, Phoenix Suns, he was the star pitcher there. And there's a lot of players from those teams that ended up with baseball scholarships at Arizona State and USC, real baseball factories. He couldn't get on the field, but what he did was he started playing American Legion ball in the summers, and that enabled him to play because the kids who played high school generally didn't play Legion ball. So he was able to start. And then once he did that, he – he started to pitch a little better. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't the world's greatest athlete. He wasn't a bad athlete, but he wasn't the world's greatest. But he he did grow a little bit in high school. He learned how to throw harder, and he was able to show that in Legion Ball. And because he was able to show it in Legion Ball, that inevitab- that inevitably got him back onto the mound in high school, and that's how he ended up getting signed.
5: And it's actually, in Legion Bowl, he actually went to prison to pitch. Not that he was incarcerated, but he was pitching against a prison team.
0: Right. So, yeah. The, so the coach to that team was a was kind of a quasi-scout for the Yankees, which is how Bouton ended up with the Yankees. So that team, as I, I tell the story in the book, that team had a loose affiliation with the New York Yankees. And to the, to the extent that they would wear old Yankee uniforms, I mean, the hand-me-downs would go, through the minors and by the time they were through the bottom level of the minors, I guess after the Sally league, they, they ended up on, you know, on the Chicago Heights Yankees and they were wearing old uniforms. And then the the coach who wanted to sign Bouton pitched him away from the eyes of other scouts. So that meant playing him in these prison games where of course, none of the scouts wanted to go into a prison so they wouldn't go to those games. So he pitched a lot in prisons. So that worked for a while. But of course, that team ended up in the, I think, the national finals in Michigan and I think in Battle Creek. And I think by that point, everybody knew who he was. So you could only hide him for, for so long.
5: So he, he signed by the Yankees eventually, goes through the minor league system. He, he gets, he rises the Yankee Stadium in what, 61, I believe, or was it 60? With the Yankees? <laughs> yeah. 62. Oh, in '62. Okay, and it was a time where America was going through a change. Uh, it was like the, like the perfect storm. He's a free speaker. He's going to a conservative Yankees team. You know, he he spoke his mind. It was kind of like a hippie culture, free love, protest, and all that. Much much like it is today. And uh, so he he's speaking freely for the for the Yankees, where they're very conservative. They don't really like that too much. Is was, he, was he like? I don't know. Separated from it from his teammates, was he like a, uh, a loner there?
0: Well, he wasn't really a loner because there were other guys who came up with him, Pepitone and Phil Liz. Those guys were those guys were not Yankees in terms of the Yankee personality. And and the reason those guys made it to the Yankees is because already they were starting to fall apart as an organization. They. They were, they were not signing the number of players that they were before. And as Bouton said at one point, you know, when he was in the minors, one of his managers said that Pepitone would never make it to the majors because guys like Pepitone don't play for the Yankees. And when Pepitone made it, everybody else looked around and said, well, if Pepitone can make it, anybody's going to make it because apparently they're, 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 there's a need here for players who are not traditional Yankees. And I think that loosened up the younger generation a little bit because I think, you know, if this was five years earlier, certainly 10 years earlier, there's no way a Pepitone or a Bouton would have made the club. There's just no, it wouldn't have happened because no matter how well they played, they were not Yankees in persona. But this, the Yankees of the early 60s were different. And so, yeah, there were the older Yankees who came from that, generation there's Mantle and Ford and, and, and those guys and they didn't really like the younger generation and then there was a crew of these young guys who hung out together and just acted like kids and pretty much like any other young ball player would on any team other than the Yankees so he he wasn't a loner but he 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 rubbed people the wrong way he would rub the older guys the wrong way simply because he would talk to the press. Um, Whereas these other guys wouldn't, even the younger guys kind of were acculturated pretty quickly into this idea that the press was the enemy. And so Mm. you stay away from them. Right off the bat, Boughton was talking to everybody. He he just liked to talk. And, you know, I think he would talk to an empty room. uh, There's no evidence that he doesn't, that he didn't talk to an empty room, (laughs) but, you know, he certainly would talk if there was only one person in the room. And so, you know, these are guys looking for stories and Bouton's willing to talk. And so he ended up with a lot of media coverage, a lot of ink in the, um, in the sports sections. And that bothered a lot of the older guys who thought, you know, the ink goes to the established Yankees. It doesn't go to these, you know, wise-ass kids who haven't done anything yet. I think one sports writer said to me that the way it, way it went was like a guy like Whitey Ford, he, you know, he earned his pinstripes. So he could say what he wanted. But if you didn't earn your pinstripes, you better just keep your mouth shut. And everybody did other than Bowden. And and maybe to his lesser extent, Pepitone. You know, if to the extent that they, they bothered people, well, you know, I don't think Bowden had a problem with that.
1: I like, you, you know, you get things from different uh, angles. So we just recently read the Yogi Berra book. And now, so we, we hear about Yogi on the bus, with the harmonica incident, the Linzer harmonica incident, and now we get it from the perspective of what went down from Linzer's side, and how Yogi was all ticked off, and it was Bouton who told Linzer to keep playing the harmonica <laughs> <laughs> and to him on, right? <laughs> and so that was the that was them going against the grain, going against the the Yankee you know, the old Yankee style. So you could see that they did not the be Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle, Yankees. Yeah, they
0: were, they weren't they, they were they weren't afraid of those guys. So I think at one point, yeah, I think, Man- I, I, I say in the book, Mantle told, told Pepitone to get him his beer and Pepitone stopped to get your own goddamn beer. <laughs> and, and, and that would not have happened a few years earlier. And so, yeah, you could see that it was a, it was a different ball game than what these older guys were used to. Mitch, tell us about,
1: uh, there was something that was also very interesting with the press. It wasn't just the, the new Yankees versus, you know, the newer guys in the clubhouse versus the, the older guys. You also had with the press, you had the, the, the press that was sensationalizing these guys, protecting them, not writing anything bad about them. And then you had the new guys who who were named uh, who were nicknamed uh, what was it the chipmunks chipmunks the right and they were the ones who Boughton would speak to and give all these stories to so, so talk a little bit about that
0: yeah so those guys were they they came of age in the television era and so and a lot of these guys wrote for afternoon papers so by the time. The morning papers had come out, people had read about the game, but really, a lot of people saw it on TV by that point. And so they had to write something different. And so these guys are looking for stories of personalities. Bowden's a huge personality. And so they, and since Bowden likes to talk and these guys want to write about personalities, they just, they just clicked really quickly. He became really tight with those guys, of which Schecter, Len Schechter is one of them, really one of the founding members of, of that. Kind of informal cadre, uh, and, and so they they become really tight to the consternation of the rest of the Yankees, who, like I said before, views them as the enemy, and and, and to the to the point where on the plane, Bowton would sit with the writers and, and not the other. Now this didn't always happen, but it happened often enough that other players took notice of who's sitting with the writers, and they started thinking that Bowton was a spy, he was feeding them stories, you know, anytime something would show up in, in the press they, that they didn't like, they would think that somebody, you know, if Bowton fed that to somebody, you know, most of the time, they, these guys are investigative reporters. They have ways of finding these things out other than getting them from Jim Bouton. But, you know, Bouton is the one sitting with them. And so that's why, you know, he, he finds himself, even though he's a player, He finds himself really aligning with the writers, which is interesting because later he really aligns himself with the writers over, you know, as he becomes one himself. But even before he was a writer, I think he had a worldview that was closer to theirs than the players. I mean, the players are pretty limited. You know, with two exceptions, these guys, they a lot of these guys were not really well educated. They didn't really have many interests beyond baseball, you know, baseball, drinking women. That's pretty much it. But Boughton had a lot of interests. I mean, he was into, you know, jewelry making. He liked the paint. He, he was interested in a lot of stuff. And so if you have all those interests, you, you're not going to get them satisfied by hanging out with Joe Pepito. you know? You're going to have to look elsewhere. And so I think that's, that's why there was a natural alliance between Boughton and these writers who I think saw the world very similarly
5: you know he like you said he came up in 62 he had his breakout season in 63 ring goes 21 and 7 and 64 he goes 18 and 13 so he has more than half his his overall victories in those those two seasons you he's, he's talk about in the book that he tracks he got a jim bowden fan club which was really started by two what 13 14 year olds who wrote to him and, and started a newsletter and they i thought that was fascinating that 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 would actually Relate with them, talk to them, come to their dinners, come at a banquet. I, th- I thought that was so fascinating. How did Jim the, end up doing that? I mean, it was just so great.
0: So these kids, yeah, these kids would hang out by the uh, the players' entrance, and uh, so they would, you know, a lot of a lot of kids would hang out and they would wait for Mickey Mantle uh, to get his autograph, and he would sign sometimes. So. It wasn't like Mantle would never sign. He would sign every once in a while, but he wouldn't talk to anybody. He would just sign his name and just move on. Or most, of, most of the players just kind of walked from the stadium to their cars. And and so you might really be a fan of Whitey Ford or, or, or Mickey Mantle, but you're not going to get much from those guys other than if you get an autograph. But Bowden would stop and talk these kids up. And, and he, he would recognize them, and you would ask about their parents, how's their family doing. He'd leave tickets for them. He'd invite them. There was a family. So there's a lot. There's the locker room, and there's kind of a family. There was a family area adjacent to the locker room in Yankee Stadium, and he would get them passes to go in there and wait for him after the games, which is, you know, if you think, you know, you're a 12-, th- 13-year-old kid, I mean, that's incredible, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs>
4: yeah,
0: so – So these kids, they may have been starstruck by, by mantle, but they were really just, they, they loved Jim Bouton. And so they, they asked him, I think they asked him, when I spoke to one of them, he said that he believes he asked Bouton in 62, if he could start a fan club and Bouton was like, well, geez, you know, I just came up that's, that wouldn't look right. So why don't you hold off, you know, for a year? And in 63, he has a big season. And so it was during the '63 season where he 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 tells this kid, "Okay, go ahead, you can you can do that now." And so they start up a little fan club, which really is just it's for people in their neighborhood. And they they come they write up a little newsletter and and then one day I think they sent a copy to Bouton. Bouton gave it to uh, or he left it in his locker, and Whitey Ford posted it up on his locker. And Schechter saw it and wrote a whole column in the New York Post on it. And after that, these two kids are getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications to join the Jim Bouton fan club. All of them with quarters taped to the back of the envelope. And and so then that's that's how that started. And they developed a relationship that lasted, you know, a few years. Uh, up up through his times with all of his time with the Yankees, he would leave them World Series tickets. He would called their parents they had a testimonial dinner up in the up in the bronx and he went to that and he sat down with the kids and he talked to all the kids one other kid has started his own fan club for some other player and bouton gave him a quarter so he could be a member of that guy's fan club so he was really interactive i mean that's not what you expect when you meet a major league baseball player uh and so he really he blew these kids away i think
1: yeah he was a man of the people he was a man of the people man of the people (laughs) now you know Mitch, he yeah, he only won 60 somewhat games, right? But he had those two great years. And it seemed to me from the book that he, you know, he was suffering injuries his his arm and shoulders and but unless I missed something, he never really seemed to to get any kind of medical attention. He just tried to pitch through everything. Was was there a fear that he would, you know, lose his spot in the rotation or I mean or did I miss something
0: well he he did in the offseason see a bunch of doctors several times I think I mentioned one in one place where he saw four different doctors in one offseason he got four different types of advice and he created his own little amalgam of the four pieces of advice and created his own little program because nobody knew what was wrong I mean there was no MRI there wasn't hmm. There certainly was no Tommy John surgery. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, he, his, as he said, his arm, it was like a dull ache. It wasn't a sharp pain. And he thought, well, it's only a dull ache, so it's not going to get worse. Um, and it didn't get worse. It just never got better. And uh, I, I, think, I think that he, he felt like I can probably pitch through this and what else am I going to do? I mean, there was really nothing else you were, you were going to do at that point if, if your arm hurt, particularly since he was not a big prospect. And, I, you know, even though he has these two big years, right, he had wins 21 games, then he wins 18, and he wins a two World Series games in 64. The fact that he wasn't a big prospect played a huge role later on because I think that the Yankees felt, well, this guy was a flash in the pan. So he had these two big years for us, and now his arm hurts. And we didn't think much of him anyway. And we're not going to sit around and wait for this guy like we would sit around for a guy that we actually had invested a lot more time and money in. And he knew that. And so there was a lot of pressure to just to keep pitching, even though his arm hurt. One thing I, I, I thought was interesting about him talking about the injuries is that he would always try to verbalize what was wrong. To me, it seemed like he was trying... I think he felt like if he could describe it accurately enough, he could fix the problem, even though that's obviously not going to happen. But, but he his personality was such that in so many other things, he, he never felt that there was a problem he couldn't overcome. So if he could identify whatever the problem was, he could figure out a way to fix it. And this is true throughout his entire life. And I really see that when he's talking, when I go through and I read the contemporaneous stuff, him talking about his, how his arm hurts him in 65 and 66 and 67. To me, it's the same thing. It's him trying to figure out how, if I can describe this, if I can pinpoint the exact pain that I'm feeling, then I can fix it. And he spends a lot of time trying to, I mean, these people, he's talking to Jimmy Cannon, who doesn't care other than the fact that his arm hurts. But he is spending a lot of time just trying to say, well, it's kinda like this, and it's kind and he's just going on and on and on. For that reason, I think. But of course, there was no cure for it. The book is called Downton, The Life of
5: a Baseball Original, but by Mitchell Nathanson. So Mitchell, after he gets he gets either traded to either, I think the Angels and ends up with Seattle Pilots in 1959 season. This is where he starts is writing the book all four. When did he start to get the idea? For that and it was one of the chipmunks Leon Sheper who was his what he it, co-author or editor uh, I don't know what kind of credit he got but that's when did he start with the idea he wanted to write Bull for
0: when he was in in the minor leagues um, oh, okay he he would come home after a year and he would tell his parents and his brothers all these things that happened and these are the guys I played with and he would just tell a bunch of stories and it was his mother who said, you know, you ought to write these things down. They would make a a good book. And of course, he never did anything about it. But you know, he he had this idea in his head for pretty much a decade. When it and it, when his career was really at the end, you know, and he he kicked around the Yankees a few years and got sent down, and then he gets sold to again, like you said, it was the Angels organization. But they he was sold to go to a club that was going to form the bones of this new expansion club. That was the whole idea. When he gets sold for what he said was a bucket of balls, he realized this was it. And if he was ever going to write anything about that, about what it was like to be a major league baseball player, he was going to have to do it this, this year because this was going to be the the last chance if it was even going to happen. That's when he got the idea to finally do it. But he had the idea for a while. He was, he was not the first choice to write the book. With him, in fact, he didn't. He was his editor, not a co-author. But he, he, Dick Shapp was the guy who World Publishing wanted to write a baseball book, and they didn't want a baseball book having. They didn't want a baseball book written by Jim Bouton, by the way. That was the last thing they wanted. They didn't think that Bouton was even going to be in the majors, and if he was going to be in the majors, he was going to be on this crappy expansion team in the Pacific Northwest that nobody would ever see, so who would care? After Dick Schaap created his own publishing company, where he would just churn out these kind of uh, as told to stories, there's a ton of them out there. The world needed somebody else, and they wanted somebody who could tell a story or help shape a story that was more than just baseball. And Schechter was like that. Schechter didn't want to do it, because he had had a bad experience. He had written one of these with with Roger Maris, and it didn't go well. And he didn't want to do it, but he said, well, there's one guy I would do it with. I'll do it with Bouton. And if I can't do it with Bouton, I won't do it at all. And world was not thrilled with that, but so they ended up striking a deal with Dick Schapp's company for a Bill Freehand book. And then they said to Schechter, all right, you can have your Bouton book. world never thought that this was even going to turn into a book. They, they, they thought that Bouton was not going to even make the team. And if he did, he didn't have much of a story. But, you know, at the end of the day, the freehand book kind of came and went. And um, it's ball four that we're talking about half a century later. So they weren't correct on that. Uh, <laughs> they weren't. <laughs> that. They were just a little bit off.
5: Just a little bit.
0: <laughs> you know, he, he spent, it
1: seems like he spent uh, many, he tried to make a lot of comebacks. He so, he, he, obviously he loved pitching. He tried to make some comebacks. Uh, approximately how many did he make? It seemed like he was always trying to come back. And at one time they sold the house that they were living in. And then, and he said something like, well, it's not like I sold the $20,000 house. You know, it, it was $125,000 house for a $75,000 house so that they could move. How, how many comebacks did he try to make?
0: Well, I mean, so that that is the comeback that he does in '78, um, where he ends up with the Braves. So he, I mean, he stuck it out with the Yankees in the '60s, um, even though he was getting sent down and and sent to the bullpen and stuff like that. You know, he he was a sportscaster for a while, right? And he was very successful, and he had done that for a while. But then this itch returned, and he went to Calgary and he played for the Calgary Jimmies, I think he played for, for a summer or something like that. And, and the Portland Mavericks, he did that for a while. He, he always, he used to say that he just wanted to play just to play, but that really wasn't true. I mean, he, he really wanted to, he wanted to come back. As a matter of fact, I, I did find one piece of information where he, in the early, I think it was 72, I think it was, where he he tried to wrangle a tryout with the Texas Rangers, and, and it didn't come off. But that's an indication that he was always thinking about this. You know, the way he tells the story later, it's, well, he makes this comeback eight years after the fact. But that's not, a, he. this was in his head, just like writing a book was in his head for a decade. This was in his head ever since he left baseball. He, yes, he did other things, and he was successful at those other things. But he always wanted to play more baseball, and he wants to come back at the highest level. And that's when, you know, by the time you get to 77, 78, he's really taking it seriously, and that's when he sells the house.
5: Right, yeah. He did find a perfect team before that in Portland with the Mavericks, and there's a wonderful documentary on Netflix, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. Everybody should take a look at that. I think they do show some of uh, Jim Bowden's games in there or, or clips of it. But he during his comeback, he really went from the uh, Pacific Northwest down to Mexico. I, I was shocked that he, you know, sold his house, moved to Mexico, took the kids. They were, uh, that must have been a, I know I would have been a scary experience. How did, how did that affect his family?
0: Yes. I, I spoke to, you know, when I spoke to Bobby, who was his wife at the time, you know, she, she was of two minds of this. She said, on the one hand, it was very difficult for them. And particularly when they went to Mexico, where she, you know, she didn't, she had a little Spanish in high school, but certainly not enough to, to you know, to to, to be able to go shopping and, and know what you're getting. So she had a Spanish-English dictionary she kept with her all, at all times. So she thought, so that was tough. But then on the other hand, she also said that it was a lot of fun and, and, and it was an adventure and she was up for the adventure. Again, not to say that that wasn't difficult also. I mean, there were there was illnesses there's times when they needed a doctor and they nobody could nobody had a car or could even call the doctor and explain what was wrong you know that's that's tough stuff and i think i think on the whole it was a it was an adventure that when you look back upon it you're glad you did it but i think at the time it's tough i mean it's a tough thing to do particularly when you know all of this all that all that money that you've you know, you've saved up from baseball is getting sunk into this comeback that probably isn't going to amount to much.
5: Yep, I, I do. Want, I do want to get back to ball for 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 a minute. I, I remember you saying in his book, he wrote down everything on on notes, scrap of papers, wrappers mm-hmm. on, on the plane, and he kept all these like nine over nine hundred pages of notes. And him and right. him and uh, Leonard Checkerwood would go through it and, and form the book. Those notes, I, I believe right now are in the library of congress is that is that true yes okay, so it, it was donated or it was sold to them. I know it at one point you tried to sell it, but
0: yeah there was there was sort of an angel investor at some point who kind of negotiated that that arrangement, so they weren't exactly donated, but they it's a complicated arrangement, but that's where they are so the bottom line is yeah that's where that's, that's where they are and of course, nobody could go in there now, but you know, when when you know when the world opens up, you could actually go in there and I, I don't know how accessible that stuff is. I mean, I know that there's there's all the drafts and all the letters and fan mail and pictures and all sorts, there's boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff. And those notes as were were in a box. I I I think I, I titled the final chapter of the book, The Butter Yellow Box. And that focuses on those notes. I don't know if they're still in that box or not, but I would assume they are. But yeah, they're like you can see they're dry cleaning receipts, they barf bags, there's hotel stationery, there's parts of scorecards, anything. And he's he has written on every available millimeter of space on these on these pieces of paper. I mean, it's written sideways and then upside down. I mean he's flipping the paper all over just to get all this stuff on there. So it's pretty all of that stuff is, and on both sides, and so all of that stuff is just really fascinating to go through to see what what caught his eye and how he was describing it and and and, and things like that.
5: Yeah, and and his, yeah. and his teammates, he told his teammates who was writing the book.
0: Well, he didn't. He didn't tell them like I mean, they didn't know. He didn't make an announcement, but. They all knew that he was writing a book because he carried a pen and paper, and it would bulge out of his back pocket. And and not only that, uh, players would say if something happened, "Hey, Bowden, put that in the book, write that down, Bowden." Mm. Uh, so they uh, they knew he was writing a book. They didn't know that they, he was writing this kind of a book. Mm. So later, when they all claimed they hadn't they hadn't known that's only half true. They they knew he was taking notes. They just didn't know that everything was fair game. I think that's what caught them by surprise. So they just claimed ignorance to the whole thing and they wanted to make him out to be kind of underhanded. And, you know, maybe it was, you could say it was underhanded and that nobody wrote a book like this and they nope. So why would anybody think that when they're on the shore roof that that's going to end up in the book? But they did know that they were in the presence of a person who's taking notes when they're doing this or that.
5: And it must've, it must've rubbed his teammates, you know, the wrong way as it did his life after baseball, after ball for like you said, he was in broadcasting. He didn't get along with some of the people in, in, in who he worked with. Uh, you mentioned Sal Marciano. They, they didn't, they didn't work very well together, even though they were in the same newsroom.
0: Yeah, no, they were not best friends, you know, but they were, they were just different types of people. I mean, Sal, Sal Marciano is a career newsman, and he's adaptable. You know, he he'll he'll do whatever you need him to do. He'll do it because that's his that's his job. That's his life. Whereas for Boughton, Bouton thought this was fun as long as it was fun, and when it wasn't fun, he wasn't going to do it. And so, a guy like Sal Marciano and a guy like Jim Boughton cannot exist in a in a newsroom because you've got one guy who's really Invested in the system, and another guy who's passing through and having a good time and knows that the second it's not fun, he's leaving. And so that's why I think Bouton really had a lot of fun at Sal Marciano's expense because he knew Sal Marciano couldn't go anywhere and he knew that this was a guy who was of the system that Bouton didn't like. And so he was an easy target. But you know, Sal Marciano. You know, he stuck around a long time, you know, and, you know, he was there before Bowden, he was there after Bowden. You know, there's something to be said for that.
1: He tried to follow up Ball four with a, well, he did follow up with a sequel, right? But it was not, obviously it didn't have the same popularity as ball four. And then ball four also, what was it? They were going to make it into a TV show or a Broadway show or a movie or something. After that. Well, they did make
0: it into a TV show in the 70s, which, which was a nightmare. It didn't, didn't go well. And I, I think that, that the problem with that show was that the people who were in charge of that show were old-time comedy people. Like They go back to, like, Jack Benny. It's just slapstick, very broad comedy, whereas what Balfour should have been and what Boughton thought it was going to be was something like MASH.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and one of, two of the people who were really high on making this book into a movie or into a television show were Elliot Gould and Alan Alda, right? And they were both in MASH, right? One was in the, <laughs> in the, in the, in the movie version. The other guy right. was, was in the television version. And both of those guys were like, this would translate well to television. This would be a great show in this vein. And I think it would have been. But that's not, you know, they, they ended up with people who thought Welcome Back Cotter was like the highest level of television mm. comedy. And, and, and this I know for a fact, because I saw a note in, in, in the Boughton papers, there was some executive um, at CBS who's, who, who gave a note to say that you know the TV show needed a catchphrase like up your nose with a rubber hose. And and, you know if that's the if that's the thing if that's the note you're getting on your show you're doomed you know you're you're gonna you're gonna come out with a show that looked like what Ball Four came out looking like Uh, and and so it's a shame because you know the source material was good and they were making some good shows you know I mean it wasn't like there was no good television comedy in the '70s I mean you had Harry Tyler Moore and Bob Newhart and Mash all in the family. They could have made a show like that but they made a show like welcome back Connor. and you know that's they didn't even achieve that level you know when he was in i think
5: i believe it was in portland when he and a teammate rob nelson came up with an idea for a bubblegum and it turns out turns out to be a pretty big product called big league Chew, and it's in every store now every 7-eleven every candy store this really set him up for life. And when I bought it for my kid a couple years ago when he was in the league, I had no idea that was, you know, a Jim bratbound uh, product. How did that come about?
0: Yeah, so that was Rob Nelson's idea. Uh, actually, I think it, there was a Bat Boy. I think it was Todd Field who was the Bat Boy for the Mavericks who's in the movie. who's in the Battered Bastards of Baseball who's now a director. Uh, and so I was like, he was the Bat Boy and he used to shred up his... Bubble gum and chew it like chewing tobacco because he wanted to look like he was chewing chewing tobacco. And Rob Nelson used to do that also. He said he used to shove pack after pack of bubble gum into his into his jaw. You know when he was in playing little league, so he could look like a big league player. And and so Boughton and and Nelson were in the bullpen one day, and Nelson tells him of his idea that you know this would be. I had this idea where I could take we could take bubble gum and shred it up like chewing tobacco and sell it to kids as a way to look like you're a big leaguer without actually choking on this stuff and getting yourself sick. And Boughton said, yeah, I could sell that idea. And so that's how they formed it, a, a partnership. It was it yeah, it was it was Rob Nelson's idea, but Boughton's the one to put up the money. Boughton is the one who really pitched it to Wrigley and, and all these other places. Uh, Wrigley ended up buying it. And by the time, by the time Wrigley sold the Cubs in '81, they were making more money annually from Big League Chew than than from than the purchase price of the Chicago Cubs when they sold them in '81. That, that I found was amazing,
5: <laughs> especially today.
0: Thank. We we appreciate so
5: much your time. I have one or two more questions. The name of the book is Down the Life of a Baseball Original. Fantastic stuff. There's a lot more we can get into, but got to buy the book. I want to ask you about his reunion with the Yankees uh, at old time day. You know, they, it, was, it was thought of having a riff. And it really was this one guy who didn't want to invite Bowden back. Steinberg had no idea. And, uh, but they, they finally got together. And tell us about that, how, how that reunion came about.
0: In Ball 4, he, he goes after a lot of people he doesn't like. One of the people that Boughton singled out in Balfour is a guy named Jim Ogle, who was a sports writer for the Newark Star-Ledger. And he 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 focused on Ogle in a few different places in Balfour, pointing him out as an example of the type of Homer kind of a writer, the guy who's a Yankee fan, he's not really He's just a fan. He's not a, a he's not a sports writer. He's not interested in a real story. He's just interested in promoting the Yankees. Um, I think he said he's the only sports writer who who takes the seventh inning stretch in the Yankees half. You know, he just gets up and and, uh, and he he's a pure fan. And so Ogle didn't didn't take kindly to that. And then Ogle then later retired from the Star Ledger and became part of the Yankees Alumni Association. And he was in charge of all timers then. And so this was from the early 70s on. Ogle was the guy who chose who would be invited, and he never invited Jim Boughton. So Boughton would talk about this over the years. And so Boughton was the one every year, not every year, but he would talk about it every once in a while, about how they won't invite him back. And they would get some play in the newspapers. And so what became a personal thing, really, between Jim Ogle and Jim Bouton became this thing between the Yankees and Jim Bouton. And, you know, everybody just kind of assumed this was from Steinbrenner, that this was Steinbrenner issuing an edict to keep Bouton out of Yankee Stadium unless he's paying for a ticket. And that that wasn't true. Steinbrenner had no idea. And I, I spoke to some people in the Yankees front office who were there at the time in the 90s who, who said that a lot of people – in the Yankee organization, just made a lot of assumptions about Steinbrenner. I mean, Steinbrenner could do a lot of crappy things, but he didn't do all the crappy things <laughs> that people <laughs> did. Some of these things were crappy things done on his behalf by people thought, thinking that's what Steinbrenner wanted, when in fact Steinbrenner never said he wanted that. Now, maybe he would have said he wanted it, but he never did. And so in 98, after um, Bowton's daughter was killed in a car accident the year before, The idea, idea, uh, somebody else in the front office had an idea of bringing him back, ran through the channels to finally get to Steinbrenner, and Steinbrenner was surprised that he hadn't been back and wanted to know why he hadn't been back. And the person said, well, because you don't want him back. And he's like, I never said that. I, I never even knew he wasn't invited. So yeah, invite him in. So he invited him back, and it was late. You know, in their preparations, that they got a uniform made for him, and and he showed up, and uh, that's how he returned to Yankee Stadium. Interestingly, by that point, Jim Ogle was still with the Yankees, but he had retired as the head of the Alumni Association. So, this was like the second year he was not making decisions as to who was going or not. Um, but they, they, I, the person who was in charge, who I spoke to, said he still had to run it by Jim Ogle because he didn't want to get on Ogle's bad side, and. He explained it to him such that, you know, look, um, this is the situation. This is why this makes sense. And he said Ogle didn't, didn't put up a fight. Although he also said, well, if it was up to Jim Ogle, he probably wouldn't have invited him in the first place. But now that other people had invited him, he, he, was, he wasn't going to say no. And so that's how he ended up going back.
1: Right. You had, of course, you had a Sparky Lyles book. You had the Bronx too. You know, which was a bad tell-all about the Yankees. Oh, I mean, great, great <laughs> book. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, so and and before before Ball Four, there were other books that were not complimentary to sports in general. Ball Four wasn't the first one; it was just seemed to be the most popular.
0: Right. Yeah. This was a format that was already well fraud by 1970. I was surprised by that. I had always thought. Well, Balfour broke new ground, which of course it did. But I thought, oh, it's the first, you know, baseball tell-all. Well, it, it, there were other books that that kind of did that. I, I talked about Brosnan's books, and then Jerry Kramer and Dick Shapp's book, uh, um, Instant Replay, about the Green Bay Packers. So that, that's a football one. Those books, you know, they shed some light into what it's like. inside a locker room. And then Len Schechter himself wrote a book, um, a very critical book about sports writing and inside professional athletics called The Jocks, which is a, it's a good book. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a downer of a book to read. It's not a, it's not a light, fun read like Ball Four is, but it's a good book. I mean, it really sheds a lot of light. I think that, you know, it could get a little dark at times, that book, which is why, you know, Schechter had this idea as to what he wanted to say, but I think you know he needed a guy like Bowton to say it because Bowton had a much lighter touch than Schechter had. You know, Schechter Schechter would just would drive and, you know drive the spike right into your head, whereas Bowton
4: mm-hmm. you
0: know, had, had a had a had an approach that was could make you laugh while getting his point across. And Schechter wasn't really. He wasn't that sort of a writer, which is why Schechter was the editor and Boughton was the writer. And that's that's how it worked. That's, that's why it worked so well because you had yeah, you had these two different people who had two different skill sets and they came together and put something together that I think stands the test of time because of they were able to come together when they were to write what they did.
1: Um, Mitch, I'll tell you, you are one hell of a writer. Mm-hmm. This book is fantastic. Yeah. It, it really is. It's a great read um I, I read it i had to read it quickly because i wanted to be ready for this interview but i am definitely going to go back and reread it that's how much i enjoyed it and i don't want to miss any of it so i just want you to know how much we appreciate you coming on and how good it is
0: absolutely oh, well, that, I, I really appreciate that
1: mitch
5: where could people pick up the book and how could they get in touch with you uh, are you on twitter facebook anything
0: Yes, yeah, so you can get the book. You know the usual places: Amazon, Bookshop.org. You can get it. You can follow me on Twitter at I'm uh, at Mitch Nathanson, and so I also have a website, MitchellNathanson.com. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to contact me, you could either DM me on Twitter or you could email me through my website. You know, uh, it's tough to do signings now because obviously everything is mm-hmm. down, but. I have book plates, which I would, you know, which I've been personalizing and sending to people and it, it, it fixes right inside the book. And so it looks pretty good. So anybody who's bought a book who wants one of those, just, you know, DM me on Twitter or, or, or email me through my website. And I, I get one of those right out to you because uh, it's, it's, I think it's this, the next best thing, I guess, <laughs> to actually being in a bookshop and, and actually signing it personally, which right. I one, but I don't know when that's going to happen.
5: Well, we hope so. Uh, if I can put a little plug in, you can also get the book at the Pandemic Baseball Book Club website where they have a link with your book, add to cart, and they can put it that way as well. A lot of great right. authors on there.
0: Yeah, so there you can get the Yogi book and, uh, and um, the Willie Mays book and, um, and all sorts of books uh, on there that are, uh, that are really great, and the Wax Pack and all those other, other things.
5: Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you for your time. Great book, people. The uh, name of the book is Down, The Life of a Baseball Original. He certainly was. We thank Mitch Nation for coming on with us and talking about his book. Thank you, Mitchell. Thanks for having me. This was fun.
1: Jeff, episode 70 is like, I, I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've got a new intro song with Shell and Dave launching it for us Dave Dresser, Shell Krakowski. We had part two of Doug Shining who, again, I can't say enough how awesome he is. And then we end with Mitchell Nathanson talking about Jim Bouton and his book, Highly Recommended. <coughs> how, do, how do we ever top this episode, Jeff?
5: Uh, well, we're going to give it a try. So, people, please give us a call at 516-855-8214. Also, rate and review us. Tell your friends. And come back for episode number 71.
1: Give us five stars, people. We've earned it. See you next time. Bye.